Interwebs, welcome back to another episode of the Fusion Underground. This is episode 72 of the Fusion Underground. Yes, 72. And here at the Fusion Underground, what we try to do is we try to make sense of the world by having principled discussions about such topics as entertainment, current events, politics, and culture. Our mission is to educate people to become critical thinkers so they can live more empowered and happier lives. As always, I'm your host, Manuel Ramirez. And as you can see there, I am not joined in the virtual studio by my brother, Jason Moret. He is out again this time. No, he is not sick. He is not salad shooting into his toilet bowl like he was last week. Uh, this time, well, it's his son's birthday, which I had completely forgotten. I had completely forgotten about that last week uh, when I was recording. So he will not be joining us today. I know. I know. Everybody's really sad about that. Nobody actually wants to hear me talk the entire time. You know, every time I, uh, every time I get behind this microphone uh, by myself, uh, I, get, I get emails from folks just saying, you know, it's just not the same. It's just not the same without Jason there. I know he's the he's the heart and soul of this of this uh, show that we're trying to do here. He always has been. Uh, so I definitely definitely miss him. I know y'all miss him too. But it is what it is, you know. That's what happens when you're a dad, and especially a dad of really little little people, really little people, uh, which his son is a very small person, very little. So uh, uh, you know. Happy birthday to Marshall, another year older, another year closer to puberty, uh, and continues to be a tyrant. I hope you get lots and lots of noisy presents, little little man. Um, but anyway, so we're back here with uh, issue or episode issue. You know, I'm thinking about Superman. That's why I said issue. Yes, I'm going to be talking about Superman a little bit today on the show. Superman, for those of you who do not know, Superman is now bisexual. Yes, DC a week and a half or so ago came out and made the proclamation that uh, the Man of Steel is now bisexual. Apparently that matters in 2021. So we'll talk a little bit about that. We're also going to talk about John Gruden. I didn't get a chance to talk about this last week. I wanted to, but I just didn't have enough time to talk about John Gruden. Uh, for those of you who do not know, John Gruden was the coach of the former uh, Oakland Raiders as well as the Las Vegas Raiders. Now that they've moved from Oakland to Las Vegas, but at one point in time, he was actually the head coach for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and actually won the Super Bowl with Tampa Bay Buccaneers. But he is now out as head coach of the Vegas Raiders. You know, nobody really cares about Vegas Raiders. I know I don't care about the Vegas Raiders, Las Vegas Raiders. 
Um, but the story is interesting. I think it's interesting because it says a lot about what is happening uh, in our culture, in our society today. So I'm going to talk a little bit about that. And we're also going to talk about overpopulating the planet. <laughs> so we got, we, got, uh, we got a lot of action-packed stuff on the docket for you today, or at least I do anyway, since I'm flying solo here. Uh, so let's start with, let's start with, um, with, uh, with Superman. Uh, I'm going to share something here so that you can, uh, you can actually see this, uh, this amazing, um, hold on before I do this, let me go back here and, uh, no, 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 I know, I know. See, Jason would be giving me so much crap right about now that I'm, I'm not fully prepared and, you know, and, and he's right. And, and that, <laughs> and this is why God love him. This is why I keep him around so that he can tell me exactly how I'm screwing up. But I have this picture here that I want to share with you all. Uh, I believe that uh, it was tweeted out by Tom Taylor. I think he's the, I think he's the writer for new Superman. I'm not exactly sure. I, I don't follow comics as much. Um, as I used to, um, of course, I was made aware of this via social media. So I'm displaying this this picture. So Tom Taylor, I think he's the the writer uh, for the new Superman uh, Superman stuff. Um, and uh, so, interestingly enough, so he tweeted this out here. And it says our Superman. So for those of you, I'm going to describe this here in just a second. What's in this picture? But it says our Superman. This is Tom Taylor tweet. Uh, Tom Taylor's tweet. Our Superman joins other heroes on the cover to Superman, Son of Kal El, number seven, out in January from DC Comics, art by John John Tim's art. John Tim. All right. So there's there's a lot of stuff going on in this particular image. Um, we've got Superman. He's standing in front of some other kids, or it looks like they're kids. They're all holding, including Superman, they're holding different signs, um, basically protesting, um, you know, capitalism, I would imagine. Uh, and they're, they're wanting justice for the climate. Interestingly enough, we've got Aquaman back here. I think who was Aqualad now, who was Aqualad. Again, I'm not up to, I'm not up to par on all of my, my comic lingo like I used to be just a couple of years ago. You know, I stopped reading comics, at least modern comics. I stopped buying them. I stopped reading them because they just became too ridiculous. The, the people writing them, I have no idea who they're writing for anymore. Uh, they're, not, they're definitely not writing to the core customer uh, of folks who actually buy these things, buy these comic books. But um, anyway, um, Aquaman is right here. And of course, S Superman is standing here right in the front, right up front. School strike for climate. He's, that's the sign that he's, um, Superman is holding. Aquaman is holding this climate justice sign. There's a, another kid with a sign here. There's, there's no planet, question mark, right? And it looks like they're standing on a street corner because there's a street lamp right next to him. You can't actually see the street. Uh, and behind them, behind all of these characters, these kids uh, and these two superheroes, is uh, there's a in the background what looks to be like a hurricane. You know, when you see a hurricane on the on the on the news, so we've got a hurricane, and then we see these huge tentacles rising up behind 
everybody. You know, everybody's just kind of chilling out while this while this tentacled monster in the background. Look, there, I mean, there's it's grasping a a uh, a boat here. So you know, we've got this. We've got a tentacled monster who's uh, wreaking havoc behind them, and and Superman is just standing there with a with a sign. You know, um, about striking about climate. Now, to be fair here, um, DC is, while some people are, are heralding this as, and calling this very, uh, very brave on DC's part to make Superman bisexual, you know, you, they couldn't make him go all in gay. He couldn't, he can't be all gay. He can only be partway gay. So he, uh, you know, because we can't, if you're DC, you need to really, really protect your brand here. So notice you know, the, the character here of Superman, this is a new Superman. This is not the Clark Kent that y'all are familiar with. This is not the Kal-El that came from Krypton. This is John Kent. This is the son of Clark Kent, um, named after his grandfather. So, um, John Kent. So, this is John Kent, uh, Clark Kent's son, who is the new Superman in the DC universe. So Clark Kent has passed on the giant S to his son. Makes sense. I get it. Um, but DC can't go full in here. And, and so they have to do everything they can to protect their brand. When, when it comes to DC comics, DC has three, three characters that they do everything possible in their power to really control because these three characters represent all of DC Comics uh, properties, and that is Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman. They protect those three. So those three characters are very, very tightly controlled in terms of what types of stories can be written about them, what can happen to them in their back in their backstories. So DC understands they cannot take Clark Kent and make him gay. Okay, they don't want to. They can't really explore that because that puts too much. That's too much risk in terms of their overall property, but they sort of want to play in this area. They want to play in this area a little bit. Uh, and so they're, they're offering up John Kent uh, as the sacrificial experiment here to see what happens. Um, so, but here's, here's a question. When it comes to climate, okay, when, if you think about this kind of this fictional universe of DC Comics and you've got all of these different superheroes now remember. Now keep in mind. I'm sure many of many of you out there uh, have seen the Marvel movies at least, so you have some idea of what the Marvel characters are like. You know, Captain America, Iron Man, uh, Ant Man, Wasp, etc. Okay, Captain Marvel. I want you to know something, especially if you don't know much about comics. When it comes to like the power levels of superheroes. The DC superheroes are vastly superior in terms of their power level. They're, they're tremendously powerful. Even somebody like Batman who doesn't have uh, superpowers per se, his intellect, his deductive reasoning is off the charts as a superpower. I mean, it's just nobody, nobody compares to the likes of Batman. And, and even Batman has a, has a way of, you know, has a plan or a strategy of defeating the likes of Superman, et cetera, should, uh, should Superman go crazy, right? Um, but anyway, the reason why I state that, the reason why I state that is because when it comes to threats that face the earth, climate is really nowhere near the top 50. 
uh, of threats to the to the planet. You know, we're we're talking about superheroes here that deal with, um, you know, deal with with people that can just you know threats uh, that can just wipe out humanity, you know, in a blink of an eye. Um, and that's what these superheroes are fighting against. Uh, and so to throw up all of a sudden climate and you're striking for it, well, that's kind of ridiculous. I mean, um, you know, we're talking about Superman here, Superman who could literally take over the world if he wanted to. This is one of the reasons why I've always thought as, you know, when I, as a fan of, of comic books, I've always, I've always thought that the character of Lex Luthor was, you know, his nemesis, Superman's nemesis was always misunderstood because if you think about the world with a Superman in it, you have the, the, the world's most powerful being living on the planet. And if he wanted to, he could take over, he could defeat the Earth's militaries in a matter of minutes uh, and take over and declare himself God, King, Emperor of Earth practically instantly. Um, and yet here we have Superman he's holding a sign striking for climate and you have Aquaman behind him. Who's who not as powerful, but is still really powerful when it comes to manipulating oceans and whatnot. Dealing with the climate is something that these two superheroes could do individually or as a team, they could just deal with it and fix everything in an instant if they so wanted. Uh, so that's why for them to be kind of striking and, and uh, you know, trying to battle climate change by protesting seems a bit absurd uh, on its surface. But also the character becoming bisexual, again, DC doesn't want to throw out their entire property of Superman and they're trying to protect it, which is why John Kent gets thrown here on the sacrificial sacrificial altar. Um, now there's, there's an interesting, there's an article here um, that I wanted to, um, wanted to share has to deal with, let me get rid of this here so that you can see it. Um, this is an opinion piece from the Washington Post that, uh, that talks about, you know, how it's strange that Superman was ever straight to begin with. So the, the author here, his name is Paul, John Paul Brammer. I'm assuming that's how you pronounce the name. Uh, but he's talking about, you know, he talk, goes through this background, this, this backstory, uh, you know, explaining how Superman comes from another planet. Um, and so there was an opportunity there, you know, sexuality might be different. He tries to, he twists himself up into pretzels, trying to explain why Superman would likely be gay or bisexual or, or whatever. Um, that's not really all that um, exciting. Uh, but this, this paragraph right here, uh, I thought was quite interesting. LGBTQ people have long read ourselves into comics. The otherness of superheroes, the differences that ultimately make them strong, naturally fostered an affinity between them and us. These heroes come from other worlds. They're often ostracized for traits beyond their control, see the X-Men, and many have secret identities. Sounds gay to me. That last part sounds gay to me. That was that was the, the article. That wasn't me saying that. Um, okay, so th that's interesting, right? 
I think that's interesting. Yes, there's a sense of otherness. Yes, they come, you know, Superman comes from a different planet. He's not from here, doesn't really quite fit in. A lot of these superheroes don't really quite fit in, right? They often wear, you know, have secret identities. Um, so they have secrets about their real lives that they can't expose to, to other people. Um, I get it. Here's the, here's the interesting thing, like, like the X-Men, you know, when the X-Men were created back in the sixties, uh, they were sort of a metaphor for racism at the time. In fact, if you read Marvel comics, which is where the X-Men are from, uh, it reads very much like racial disparities, racial injustices, et cetera, but they go, you know, what was interesting is when Marvel created them, Stan Lee, when he created them, he created the X-Men as a symbol. Okay. And so using that, what was kind of going on in the sixties with respect to, uh, racial differences and racial equality and, and so forth, that concept blended really well into the, you know, took that zeitgeist from what was happening in the culture and implemented into the stories that Stanley was trying to tell at the time. And it worked really, really well, but here's why it worked. It worked because Stan Lee used the X-Men as a symbol. So what, do, what is a symbol? Well, a symbol is, is a thing, is something that can stand for other things. Okay. So if you look at, take, for example, a Christian cross, it is a symbol, but it represents more than just uh, a cross. It's more than just two pieces of wood and a cross formation. It stands for, if you're a Christian, it stands for a lot of other concepts, values, principles, etc. So a Christian can look at the cross and they can see all of those other esoteric type of concepts that lie behind the cross. You know, Christ as Savior and, you know, the, the, you know, the Christian tenets and all that kind of stuff, okay? And so the X-Men served that purpose with respect to racism but also with respect to people who also just did not fit in. And it, that could be people of different races. It could be people of different belief systems, et cetera. So it works really well. And what's really nice about that is when Stanley did it, he didn't root the X-Men specifically into the 1960s because he created this whole concept of the X-Men and mutants and how they interact with, um, which that's what X-Men are. If you're not aware, they're, they're, they're homo superior. Okay. So they are, uh, so in essence, they're a different race altogether from, you know, you and I as, as homo sapiens. And so, but what's nice about that, the reason why that works so well is those characters and those stories in the symbolism for what the X-Men mean, they become timeless, which means they're just as appropriate today as they were in the 1960s because we can put our own interpretations on what the X-Men stand for. And as society evolves and as those things, as our, our um, you know, as our culture evolves, there's always going to be inequalities within our culture. That's a, that's a way of life. That's something that we have to get used to no matter who we are, um, whether you're black, white, um, Asian, gay, heterosexual, conservative, liberal, whatever. You know, there are a lot of, for example, there are a lot of conservatives who do not want to speak out loud in public that they're conservative. They hide the fact 
that they're conservative because they're feared, they're fearful of the backlash and the negative, um, the negative treatment that they're going to get from people, particularly from liberals. That can serve as a, the X-Men can serve as a, as a metaphor for conservatives and how they feel today. Could, right? That's what makes the, the concept of the X-Men so time, so timeless. If Stan Lee had written in all of the racial inequalities that were happening in the 1960s into those stories of the X-Men in the 1960s, then it would have heavily rooted the X-Men into the 1960s and they no longer would have become very timeless. What we're seeing now with the idea of Superman battling for climate change or with Superman becoming bisexual uh, in this world of wokeism and in this world of transgenderism and fluid, you know, fluid genders and all these sorts of things, what DC Comics is doing is they're taking the character of Superman and they're rooting, they're rooting him directly into 2021. In 50 years from now, nobody's going to have any clue what any of these stories are referring to because the concepts will have completely changed. The ideas, the zeitgeist, what's going on in the culture is going to evolve. And they're not going to understand these, you know, climate, you know, protests and, and why this is so, why this matters so much. Because they're doing this, it feels like, whether or not the creators are doing this intentionally, it feels like this is just an attempt to play into the woke, the wokeness that is happening out there, particularly in geek culture. And I think, um, you know, I, I don't think this is going to, I don't think this is going to play very well in terms of, uh, in terms of comic book readers, because many comic book readers are, are lashing out and they're saying, who is this written for? Who, who is writing, you know, why are they writing these kinds of stories? This is not what we're interested in as, as consumers. That does not mean that the consumers of American comic books are, you know, transphobic or gay phobic or wh how, whatever the, you know, whatever the, the latest um, catchphrase or catch term is to say that, you know, to say that conservatives or, uh, you know, people hate gays or trans or trans people. In, in fact, that's just the opposite. These, these consumers of these comic books, it's not, they, they don't, whether or not, they might hate them, I don't know. Uh, some people, some of these com comic book readers may very well dislike gays and, and, and uh, trans individuals, they may. As a, as a comic book reader, as a, well, as a, really as an ex-comic book reader now, I don't hate those people. I don't hate gays. I don't hate trans people. Um, I, I view them as they're humans and they deserve to be treated with respect and dignity like any other human being. And I, I value their life as a fellow human being. My question, my concern is if as a comic book reader, even if I were to go back and read comics, I don't want to read about romantic relationships in superhero stories. That's not why I read them. Um, and that's, there, there, are, there are media that are designed to tell and talk about romantic stories. And then there are media that do not talk about romantic stories. So I just, I wouldn't want to spend a lot of time 
watching Superman explore a heterosexual relationship, uh, just as I don't really want to read about Superman exploring a bisexual relationship. That's not why I read the comic books. Now, would those are there interesting stories that could be told around explore, exploring those relationships and so forth? Of course there are. Of, and there can, be, there can be infinite number of stories that can be told. But that's not why I read comic books. And that's why I don't think a lot of people read comic books. I think they're reading them for, for other things. Um, and so what the, the execution of this feels, feels very disjointed, especially in American comics. This is not the first time that something like this has happened. American comics are really struggling right now um, because they're, they're struggling in terms of, of financial revenue. Nobody's buying comics anymore. Nobody's picking up these books. And yet comic creators are, are doing everything they can to demonstrate their wokeism, their wokeness, their level of wokeness by their characters are constantly becoming either bisexual or gay or trans and, and, and whatnot. Um, and no matter how many times they, they introduce all of these uh, leftist, wokest types of topics into their comic books, nobody's buying them. And when you look at comics from Japan, manga, for example, there are single issue comics of Japanese manga that are outselling all of American comics combined in a single month, which means one issue of manga that is published, let's say in the month of August, that one issue of manga is outselling all of the issues that were released in the same time frame in the United States. Think about that for a moment. And if you're an executive at, a, at DC or you're an, you're an editor at DC Comics or Marvel Comics or Image Comics, Dark Horse Comics, you would think at some point you would stop and wonder, wait, what, what is manga doing that is kicking our asses over here? They're selling one issue. One, one issue is outselling all of Western comics. What is going on? Now, here's the interesting thing about manga. Manga does tackle bisexual relationships, gay relationships, etc., heterosexual relationships. They tackle all of those things but they approach comics in a very, very different way. They don't come right out and just say, hey, this character we're now making gay and just you know, let everybody celebrate and come buy it. What they do is, what the, the Japanese are doing, the Japanese creators, is they're creating interesting stories, stories that people can relate to. And if the characters in those stories happen to be gay or bisexual or whatever, they are, they are gay or bisexual because it, it helps tell the story or that's, the, that's the, the natural progression and development of the characters per se. In other words, Japanese creators are not trying to push forth an ideology. They're trying to tell a story and allowing the story to evolve along its natural, its natural lines. American comics are pushing an ideology and then they're trying to shoehorn stories into it. And because they flipped it, the natural result of the way Japan is doing things versus the way America is doing things is vastly different. The outcomes are vastly different. The outcome is 
the Japanese comic industry is crushing the American comic industry because the Japanese creators are focused on creating interesting art, art in a way that tells a story and interesting characters that tell interesting stories. They're letting the quality of the work produce the outcome of high sales. Whereas in American comics, they're trying to create an, they're trying to push forth an ideology in the hopes that it leads to economic success. And the absolute opposite is happening. And still after a couple of years of this wokeness happening uh, in American comics, um, they're just not learning their lesson. All right, enough of, uh, enough of, enough of that. Oh. I know that some, some crazy, uh, some crazy things uh, happening there. Um, we have, you know, it's almost Halloween. Halloween is almost, uh, almost upon us. Uh, and I'm going to share this story here that I have. Bear with me as I get this one up. But uh, a school in, up in Seattle, Washington, they have canceled Halloween. Um, and uh, it's, it's for some really interesting, um, interesting reasons here. Yeah. So school cancels Halloween parade because event marginalizes people of color. Costume parties could become uncomfortable for some students and distract them from learning school, school tells parents. So this comes to us uh, from the independent in the UK. So the UK doing the heavy lifting of journalism here, um, talking about things going on here in the United States better than our own media uh, is, is doing here. Um, an elementary school in Seattle has canceled its annual Halloween parade this year as the event quote, marginalizes students of color who do not celebrate the holiday. Are there a lot of students of color who do not celebrate the holiday of Halloween? I don't know. I, I don't know the answer to that. Um, I'm assuming, I'm assuming here that the, that the, the school has some data around this, that they're, they're doing this because they recognize that there are students of color in their school who do not celebrate Halloween. Okay. The Benjamin Franklin Elementary School's racial equity team decided to cancel the pumpkin parade where students dress up in Halloween costumes after deliberating for five years. <laughs> they've been talking about this for five years. And so now they've decided things are right uh, you know, the culture is now right where everybody is going more and more woke every day. So now is a good time to cancel Halloween. Historically, the pumpkin parade marginalizes students of color who do not celebrate the holiday. Specifically, these students have requested to be isolated on campus while the event took place, a Seattle Public School spokesperson told KTTH Radio. There are numerous community and neighborhood events where students and families who wish to can celebrate Halloween. I don't know what's going on here with uh, my, you know, you get all these, I'm gonna get rid of that here so we don't get distracted. Yeah, you get all these advertisements that pop up on, on your news sources. Okay, so um, we've got a, the pumpkin parade marginalizes students of color who do not celebrate the holiday, all right. Okay, so we know that there are numerous community and neighborhood events where students and families wish to can celebrate holiday. Well, but apparently they cannot 
um, celebrate in the community of their own school. In the newsletter sent to parents, the school noted that costume parties, this one's this one kills me. In the newsletter sent to parents, the school noted that costume parties could become uncomfortable for some students and distract them from learning, could. It's not that it is, and therefore we need to step in and make amends to our students who are uncomfortable. We just, we think it might, we think the parties might. Well, we distract them from learning. That's the whole point of having a party, right? Is you take a break from the learning and you have a party. Distract, distract them from learning. Kids have only been celebrating these, these parties in school for decades. I remember doing this as a kid. Here's a, you know, here's a, here's an interesting little tidbit. You know, when I was a kid, um, you know, fourth and fifth grade, primarily when I was a kid, my, my mother decided that she needed Jesus and that I needed Jesus as well. Now keep in mind, you know, that's not necessarily a bad, a bad, uh, you know, conclusion to come to as a, as a single parent, as my mother was at the time. Um, so, I mean, she could have come to worse conclusions. Okay. Um, maybe she did with this particular one. Anyway, she, she, uh, she decided that she needed Jesus and I needed Jesus. And so her response to the two of us needing Jesus was for us to become a Jehovah's witness or Jehovah's witnesses. Yeah, that was interesting. Um, and so for a couple of years, while I was in elementary, right around the same age, you know, um, you know, where we were celebrating different holidays in school or whatnot, I got to be the Jehovah's Witness kid in, in my class, which meant when the class had things like a Halloween party or a Christmas party or just a Christmas decorating, you know, Fridays was always art day. I don't know why Friday, um, but it was Fridays. It was always Fridays in my school. And so on Fridays, we did, a, we did an art project in class. And so during the holidays, it was we did holiday art projects. And I felt kind of bad for my teachers because um, when, when the rest of the class was making, um, you know, Christmas trees as an art project uh, or snowmen, my teachers had to come up with some other, some other art project for me to do because I didn't, you know, we didn't celebrate holidays. So I totally get it. Right. I, I had to, I think during the Halloween party one year, I had to go to the library. Uh, I had to go to the library and I just sat there and read while the rest of the kids had their, had their Halloween party. Um, so, you know, I, I get it, but at the same time, I didn't feel, um, well, I certainly wasn't distracted from learning because it was, Hey, you're going to go to the library and you're going to sit there and read. So while everybody else was partying, I continued to learn to some degree by, by reading whatever books were, were there or that I was given to read. Um, anyway, I just, I just offer that because there are always going to be people who don't celebrate certain things for one reason or another. Uh, even if, even if kids are, are Jewish and in a predominantly Christian school, those, you know, I'm not saying that, you know what, here's an example. A Jewish kid could, could attend a Catholic school. That could happen because Catholic schools do not discriminate solely. They do not discriminate on religion. 
You could even come from an atheist uh, family. And a, a, I know a Catholic school definitely will. I'm not saying all Christian schools, but uh, a Catholic school will take you. They see that as an opportunity to at least expose you to, to Jesus and God and all of that sort of thing. So even if, you're, even if you're Jewish and you wanted to attend a Christian school, guess what? You're going to be exposed to Christianity while in that school. And you kind of accept that as you go into that school. If you're a family of color here in Seattle and you don't celebrate Halloween, but you know that students at your school, at the school do, then why wouldn't you educate your kid that this is not something we do, it's something everybody else does. That Because that's what my mother did for me. She educated me at the time and said, here's why I don't want you celebrating it. And I was like, okay, whatever. Um, you know, did I, was I kind of bummed a little bit that I didn't get to participate in the holidays or whatever at school? Well, a little bit, but I don't really remember it being that bad of a thing, right? So as a parent, why wouldn't you educate your kids? Why would you, and here, here, here's the, the interesting part. The article doesn't talk about the fact that parents aren't doing this. In fact, the parents, if they're, willy, if, if they're willfully not celebrating the holiday, they very well like, may likely be educating their kids that here's what we do and here's what your school does. And I know those things are different, but I don't want you participating. What the school has done all on its own is they've gone off for the last five years and they've, they've discussed whether or not they should cancel Halloween or not cancel Halloween. So they're making this decision for the parents' benefit and for the kids' benefit without even involving them and saying, hey, what can we do or what would you prefer? At least if that, if that is happening and never made it into the article. Halloween, Halloween events, going back to the article here, Halloween events create a situation where some students must be excluded for their beliefs, financial st status, or life experience. Ah, I don't really think it has anything to do with their beliefs. I think it has more to do with financial status or life experience. I'm wondering what the, econo what the social economic makeup of this particular school looks like. I'm wondering if there are, uh, if the, the, the black kids at the school, the Hispanic kids at the school, I wonder if they come from more economically depressed families. And if maybe those kids don't have the money or their family, their families do not have the money to buy them a costume. I wonder if, I wonder if that's really what's more at play. And so these kids are coming and they're, they're not in costume. And so they feel kind of ostracized because everybody else is in costume. Again, we're trying to remove here at the school anyway, they're trying to remove the triggers so that all of the students don't have hurt feelings. Well, that's not, that's not what life's about. And I'm not saying that kids' feelings need to be stomped on when they go to school. Look, there were times when I was a kid and I went to school and I didn't have a costume or I forgot my costume. Yeah, I felt out of place because I forgot to put my costume on. Or I really hated St. Patty's Day. I'm not Irish, but I remember St. Patty's Day and it was like, man, if you didn't have green on, it was just that day was hell. You were tormented and pinched and 
you know, it was, you know, the leprechaun pinching. I don't, do they still do that anymore? Is that a thing? And uh, yeah, it was, it was, uh, <laughs> yeah, it was a terrible day. If you forgot, if you got, forgot to wear green to school, I remember being in a panic. Oh my God, I don't have anything green. You know, and being in a panic because I didn't have anything green to wear. Not because I wanted to participate in the holiday, but because I didn't want people pinching me all day long, right? And retribution for not wearing green. So I think this has more to do with the financial status of children not being able to afford certain costumes. But then again, you know, I grew up poor. My parents, my you know, depending on who I was living with at the time, based on my age, my parents didn't have any money for Halloween costumes and, and that sort of thing. I had to be creative. I remember one year, one year, uh, I wanted to go as a wizard. I wanted to go like as Gandalf. You know, I remember seeing, watching uh, the animated Lord of the Rings. I was a big, you know, you know big geek at the time. Uh, and I wanted to go as a wizard. And I told my mom I wanted to go as a wizard. Um, and I wore a bathrobe. We had a bathrobe. It was a blue bathrobe. I wore a bathrobe around the neighborhood. And my mom, she got me uh, this long, because, you know, wizards have, you know, the traditional image of a wizard, they have long beards and, you know, long gray hair and everything. So my mom got me this wig and it was, it was actually a blonde wig that I wore. And then she had my mom, because she had dressed up in, in other years prior, she had a witch's hat, but it was a black witch's hat. Well, I remember watching the cartoon with Gandalf. I remember the Hobbit was a, the animated movie of the Hobbit at the time was a favorite of mine as a kid. You know, Gandalf has that big brimmed hat kind of very similar to a witch's hat, right? So my mom took out, she cut, she cut out little uh, stars and moons and then wrapped them in tin foil and then pinned them to the hat, right? So that it supposed to be magical. <laughs> No. Um, and so I walked around in the bathrobe with a blonde wig on and a hat. Nobody knew I was a wizard. I'd go trick-or-treating with my friends. And they had really, they went as my, my next door neighbors at the time, they dressed up as ninjas and they had cool ninja costumes. At least I, we all thought they were cool. I thought it was cool. And when we, we would go knocking on doors, everybody knew they were ninjas. Nobody knew what the hell I was. Some people thought I was an old dude in a bathrobe. Uh, other people thought I was supposed to be some kind of a witch because I had a witch's hat. It was a black witch's hat on. Nobody under nobody could could make the connection between the bathrobe being the robes of a mage of a wizard, right? Uh, <laughs> you know that's I was. It didn't matter. I was dressed up. I had my costume on, and I was I was getting candy. It didn't matter. You know. So you know, even when you're poor the kids don't know they're poor and you, you make do with what you have and parents can make do and they figure out how to, how to make that happen for their kids. My point being is why are we trying to reach out and protect kids of a financial, of a certain financial status? Let the parents do that and let the parents try to navigate the, the emotions of their children by either participating or not participating in the holiday and the school can be there to, to support the kids regardless of whatever decisions they and their parents make. That seems like a much better, better uh, strategy for life overall.
In alliance with its commitment to students of color, specifically African-Americans, the staff will supplant the annual event with more inclusive and educational opportunities during the school day. Um, here's a, here's a, a hint for y'all. The kids don't want additional educational opportunities. They're in school all day long. They're looking for a reprieve. They're looking to have a little bit of fun. Supplant so the annual event with whatever you want, but not a, a, something with educational opportunities. You might as well send them to the library for crying out loud. Hey, we're going to have our party over here, but we're going to send you to the library. At least, at least they have educational opportunities by sitting in the library. Anyway, enough of that. Um, we do have we do have something else here. Uh, this comes to us from Twitchy. I don't know if you, if you're familiar with Twitchy at all. Uh, this comes to us from Twitchy and the Jefferson statue. So uh, the Thomas Jefferson statue, uh, there's a, so for those that you don't know, I didn't really know this either, but in New York city hall, there's a uh, Thomas Jefferson statue and the, the city hall has voted to remove um, the Thomas Jefferson statue from the hall. Now, I don't know if y'all remember, but if you go back to, to uh, 2020, Right. We had BLM and Antifa. They were removing statues from all over the country of Confederate heroes. I use heroes, you know, in quotes, because depending on whether or not you found them to be heroic, completely subjective. Right. Um, but somebody at some time, at some point in time said, this person is a hero because they were born here. They came from here. They're historic, whatever. And they put up a they put up a statue. So BLM and Antifa were going around and they were pulling down all of these statues. And at the time, there were people who said they're not, they're not going to stop. Antifa and BLM, they're not going to stop. Yes, they're going to pull down Confederate um, icons and then they're going to go on to other statues. Well, they're going on to other statues. And at the time, People on the left said, no, they're, it's just Confederate statues. They're not going to go any, they're not going to go beyond that. Just Confederate statues. And they were really going borderline by removing a statue of Abraham Lincoln up there in, uh, was it uh, Massachusetts uh, in Boston, I think. The, the, there was a, a statue of Abraham Lincoln and there was a slave who was on, on a knee at the foot of, of Abraham Lincoln. That was the whole statue it was designed that way. And um, the the leftists said, well, this is terrible because look at this, 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 this African-American is on his knees and we got to remove that. It's disgusting. Um, the designer, the artist who created the statue said, no, he's not on it. The, the, the slave isn't on his knee. The slave is rising up, right? But it's a statue, so it's static, <laughs> So the, the slave is that was actually ra being raised up because of the Emancipation Proclamation. Uh, but they removed that statue. Now, I, I know, you know, Abraham Lincoln uh, was a, you know, icon during the, during the, during, during Confederate, the war of Northern aggression, if you will. Um, so that was kind of borderline. But everybody swore and said, it's not going to go beyond the Confederate, you know, Confederate statues. Um, but it is going beyond Confederate statues uh, because now we've got Thomas Jefferson being removed from New York City's town hall. Uh, I think that's uh, I think that's a bit uh, a bit tragic, if you will. 
All right. So let's let's talk about some uh, some John Gruden. For those of you who don't know, I talked a little bit about who John Gruden was at the beginning of the show. Um, but um, what happened to John Gruden? Well, he was forced to resign or he resigned um, a couple of weeks ago uh, from the Las Vegas Raiders. He was a head coach. They were actually doing pretty well. Um, and they he resigned. And well, why did he resign? Well, back in 2011, um, John Gruden was an, was an analyst at ESPN. So his stint went from 2011 to 2018. And while he was there, he was emailing various people throughout the league. Uh, you know, he's John Gruden. He knows a lot of people in the league, or a lot of people who were in the league and a lot of people that were still in the league at that time, et cetera. And so he was having private email conversations with folks. And apparently he used, you know, various phrases to describe certain people that were considered racist, homophobic, misogynistic. Um, and, you know, there was, I, I think it was, I think it was with uh, uh, Maurice Taylor, I think is uh, the, where he, where John Gruden, wrote in one of his emails that he had, he had big lips and everybody was like, Oh my God, that's racist. Um, <laughs> and my thought was, well, well, does he have big lips or not? I mean, does, <laughs> you know, I mean, is, was that untrue? Um, are you mad at the untruthfulness of the claim or are you just mad because it felt insensitive? Um, so I, I just, I, I try to find a little bit of humor in, in all of these different types of, of, of things. Um, but so how did these emails come up? Well, apparently there was allegations against the Washington Redskins team and, you know, of, you know, sexual misconduct and all this other kind of stuff. So there was an investigation that was digging through the Washington, fo the, the Washington Redskins team who are now the Washington football team, right? And I think this was, you know, it just seems, it, all of this seems really fishy to me. It seems like somebody was really trying to uh, find a bunch of leverage against the, the Washington uh, football organization so that they could put leverage on them to change, to change their name because um, they didn't want to do that for a long time. They said they weren't going to change their name. Uh, they were, they stood strong against that. They had, I think that it went to court at one point and they had legal precedent not to. So I think a lot of folks were trying to find um, some leverage against the ownership to force them to change. And I don't know. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just speculating here, but anyway, and then long story short, they were digging, they were conducting this, this uh, investigation into the Washington in the Washington Redskins. And they were digging through these emails and, and they uncovered these emails that John Gruden sent. And, uh, and so they were exposed to the New York Times. I think it was the New York Times who broke the story. The question that I wanted to know is, how did the New York Times find out about this? If you're an organization, an organization like the NFL, you should want to keep these kinds of investigations close to the chest. You don't want other people looking at it, especially in, in recent years with, um, with the NFL and the negative press that they've navigated over recent years, over the last 10, 15 years. You know, there, there was the whole uh, kneeling thing 
um, from a year or so ago. Um, you had that. You've had players who have who are on camera who had been video recorded punching or assaulting women. And yet those players are still in the league. Still in the league. And yet John Gruden said some things in some emails and he's out. Now I'm not excusing what John Gruden wrote, didn't write, whatever. I don't know. But I do know this. They were emails one-to-one on a personal between one person and another. They were not broadcast out to a larger group of individuals. They were between John Gruden and his and the recipient of it. John Gruden wasn't even under investigation for this. Now, but because all of these emails came out, he was forced to resign. What I find interesting about this story is what does it say about our culture? You know, last week I talked about resiliency at at Oberlin. And now we're we're still ha- we still have this whole situation of a lack of resiliency, a lack of just fortitude, just emotional and psychological fortitude. Because John Gruden John Gruden is lovingly referred to by his fans as Chucky. Do you remember Chucky, the little murdering doll? Because his face, when he's all, when he looks all crazed, looks like the face of Chucky. We're talking a football coach for crying out loud. I don't know if anybody's ever played football or hung around athletes of this, of this magnitude. But the type of language that these guys use on a daily basis, again, I'm not, ex- I'm not excusing it. I'm, not, I'm, just, I'm just describing what actually happens. There's a lot of racist slurs and all kinds of, of you know, ribbing and that takes place in the locker room, even on the field to one against the other team. And coaches for decades have encouraged this kind of behavior. Why? Because they want their players to get fired up and they want them to be aggressive on the field. Let's face it, football is not a is not a sport that you play passively. Coaches need you if they're going if you're if we're going to win as a football team, we need you fired up, amped up and ready to attack the other team. Plain and simple. I'm not saying anything that anybody doesn't know. None of what I'm saying is um, should be should be new to anybody. The NFL for decades has always been a high a high velocity, high impact, high collision sport. You don't make big plays, you don't win championships by passively poking another guy. <laughs> Had that choice of words. I was thinking more like poking, but I. You know, we're not playing touch, we're not playing touch football here. We're not playing flag football here. It's tackle football. You can't just, you know, use harsh language. Well, they do use harsh language, but you can't use, you know, just will somebody to fall over while they're carrying the ball. And coaches set that kind of culture. They set that aggressive culture. They have to be. especially to be high performance at the, at the, the level of the NFL, 
Now, again, this, this isn't meant to, um, to explain away, you know, John Gruden can explain his own words. He can explain his own rationale. He doesn't need somebody like me and nobody to come in and try to protect him or try to defend him from anybody. John Gruden can do that on his own. I just trying to get people to recognize that this is, this is ridiculousness. What we have here, we have people that are so hurt emotionally and psychologically from some emails that they were never privy to, that they're somehow hurt. I guarantee you, John Gruden has probably said terrible things to his own players to their face. He's probably, because that's the kind of feedback that you have to give players at that level for them to perform. He's probably said some very terrible things that would make that would make grandmothers gasp and clutch their pearls. This is no this is nothing new. This has been happening for decades. Does that mean he's a he's a racist, he's a misogynist, he's all of these things? No. It means he knows how to win and he knows how to motivate. That's what it means. Does that end up carrying carrying through off the field? when you're talking football to other people in the sport, of course, which is what he was doing. He was talking football. You know, there were people that read his emails were aghast um, because uh, he, you know, criticized, I forget the, the gentleman's name. He was the first gay, um, you know, openly gay athlete. He came out in college. Um, and apparently what happened was, was Roger Goodell, the commissioner of the NFL pressured one of the teams to actually recruit him, recruit the kid out of, out of college, which they did. And John Gruden didn't agree with that because he felt that the, the uh, recruiting, the recruiting of that individual player of that gentleman um, was done purely because of his sexuality and not because of his talent on the football field. And in fact, um, I, my understanding is that particular athlete never actually played in the NFL because he just wasn't good enough to make the cut of the different teams. Now, there are going to be some people that say, well, he didn't make the cut because he came out as being gay. Well, then you then if you're going to make that claim, then you're going to have to back that up with with evidence to support that claim. Because I'm sure that the coaches that cut him can present and can produce the 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 data that shows why they cut him from their teams to begin with, why he didn't, why he was not good enough to make the roster. You, these, when you play at the NFL, the NFL is a vastly different level of, of performance than of athletic performance than in college, vastly different. The vast number of college athletes of college football players do not make it in the NFL. They just don't a very small number. So as you go from high school to college to the NFL, that number of players gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And we have a very, very small number of players that actually are, are good enough to be in the NFL. But so John Gruden out at, at uh, in Vegas, Tampa Bay, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers with whom he won the Super Bowl with, they removed him, they removed John Gruden from their ring of honor. What's the ring of honor? Well, when you go into the into the stadium, usually there's a there's a, a ring going around the stadium, and they put up the names of players uh, and people from past uh, individuals from the organization that are standouts. You know, they retire a number and they put their name and their number up there, or if it's a coach, they just put their their coach's name up there. Maybe the years that they were coached there. 
So John Gruden's name was up along in that ring of honor of going around the stadium. They removed him from that ring of honor. So the accomplishments and uh, everything that he brought to that team, leading a, a large group of African-Americans while doing it, no longer, no longer matters. I think it was, I think it's EA um, video game manufacturer. They're going back through and they're pulling uh, John Gruden from the latest, um, the latest uh, iteration of Madden, which is a video game. I think I read that somewhere that that was happening as well. So this is just, um, this is, this is just, it's just, it's just really sad for our culture for a lot of different reasons. Um, and, and again, going back to the whole concept of, of this being, you know, um, just a lack of resiliency on a lot of people's part. Take a look at this one. This, this article comes from the New York post. Um, I don't know if you can see it here. I'm trying to get this on here. And it's Raiders Carl Nassib asked for personal day to process John Gruden emails. Says Carl Nassib, the Las Vegas Raiders lineman and first active NFL player to come out as gay, requested a personal day to process emails sent by former coach John Gruden, which used homophobic language. He needed a day to process a football player in the NFL. To what end? What, why, 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 where's the toughness here? Where's the, where's the sense of, of fortitude to be a football player? If you hang around these guys, if you play football, if you're in this kind of sport, strength, fortitude, you know, tenacity, all of that is center to everything that you do. And Carl here needs a data process, the, the emails. Just because, is it because he's gay? Is it because he's black? Is it because it was his coach? The rest of the team didn't take a data process. How come this, where's the mental toughness to say, okay, you know what? Yeah, you know what? Players typically get attached to their coaches. And trust me, coaches can be assholes. They typically are because they're not there to they're not there to treat you nicely. They're there to push you beyond what you think is possible for you. They're there to push you and push you and push you and it's going to hurt and they know it's going to hurt and they have to get you to understand that it's going to hurt and embrace the hurt because they need you. They they know that you can get up to here. You think you can only be down here and it's that coach's job to get you from here all the way up to this upper level. They know that's going to hurt. And that doesn't happen easily. And so they have to push you to get you to get to that higher level, to make that transition. That's what a good coach does. Now we have guys that need a personal day to process. We're creating this whole environment where people just need, they need to be safe all the time. He needs a coach to tell him to suck it up and get back out on the field is what he needs. And I'm sure I'm not the only person that's probably saying that. 
um, maybe I'm the only person saying it out loud, but there are probably a lot of other people who, who are saying that, or at least think that. I do have I do have uh, one other one other thing that um, that I wanted to uh, to talk about here. I'm not going to share the article just because it's just ridiculous to to do so. But I will talk about it. And this comes for, to us from the New York Post. The title here is New York lawmaker Deborah Glick says Earth has too many people. I'll read that again. New York lawmaker Deborah Glick says Earth has too many people. Assemblywoman Deborah Glick has figured out what's wrong with Mother Earth. There are just too many people living here. The longtime West Side politician made the stunning comments in a Friday morning tweet that read, quote, world population in 1950, 2.5 billion. 2015, 7.3 billion. The lack of family planning because of religious zealotry has stressed the planet, something no one talks about. Want some, something no one wants to talk about. The tweet echoes the stated rationale offered by Thanos, the fictional villain from the Marvel comics and blockbuster Avengers movies, Infinity War and Endgame, as he attempts to justify his plot to wipe out half the population of the universe with a snap of his fingers. While Glick's pro-family planning message is not calling for half the world population to be turned to dust, it's at least the third time in recent years that she has made similar remarks Quote, it takes a special kind of demented to watch Avengers Infinity War and think it ends on a high note, cracked one Democratic insider. In 2019, she defended her, she defended her decision. In 2019, she defended her decision to hold up legislation that would legalize paid surrogacy in New York State. Um, the move infuriated many constituents in her district, which includes the historically gay and bohemian West Village. The measure eventually became law the following year after it was included in the state's must-pass budget legislation to circumvent her opposition. Uh, all right. So this raises several different questions for me. As well as, as it probably as it, as it probably does for you for you too. Um, first of all, when she said in her tweet, world population in 1950, 2.5 billion, 2015, 7.3 billion. So obviously she's trying to say that because the population has increased, it's therefore a bad thing as that's a bad thing as a result. So the question is, is, is it bad now? Is it, was it bad simply because it was 7.3 billion in 2015? What, what's the right number, Ms. Click? What is the right number for the population here in the United States? Was 2.5 billion in 1950, was that an appropriate number of people? Is it 5 billion? She doesn't really say. Perhaps it should only be 1 billion. But obviously by her tweet, she makes that, since she's making that comparison, and she, she basically says, that or she does say that you know the lack of family planning has stressed the planet so she's not making a case that 7.3 billion is a good number and we should actually have more she's not saying she's saying the opposite of that she's saying that we have too many people as it is so who gets to decide who has too who who gets to decide who gets to stay and who gets to leave that's the problem with these types of people is they never actually say who should decide. That should be the very next question. Who should decide 
who stays and who doesn't. Because depending on who you ask and what their ideology is like, it could be that maybe people like Deborah Glick get eliminated as well. So does she think that people like her would be allowed to stay? And then people that don't think like her or don't align with her beliefs should be the ones to go. Who is it that goes? Is it the religious zealotry? Or I sorry, the religious zealots? Should they go? Does that include all the Muslims and all the Jews and all the Buddhists and all the Christians? Should all of them go and only atheists get to rule the world? Who gets to decide this? And who gets to decide why 7.3 billion is worse than 2.5 billion? Who gets to decide what the appropriate number is? These are all kinds of questions that people should be asking her rather than just, hey, can you defend your comment? They should be asking her who gets to make those decisions because those are deplorable decisions to make. And, and what's, what's very scary is our, our culture is now entering into a very, very, um, well, at, at a turning point, I would say, you know, we have a lot of there, you know, a lot of places around the world are implementing COVID mandates and COVID lockdowns, et cetera. Australia, Australia is off the charts in terms of how quickly they embrace totalitarianism to try to control a virus. They've locked people down. They're attacking people who are stepping out of their homes. They've created an app to track people. So, I mean, this is, of course, all of this is being done in the name of healthcare and in the name of protecting you, the citizen. They're doing it for your best interest. They're doing it to protect you so that you don't get sick. And I hate to bring up the comparison um, because it's very cliche. It happens all the time. But when you look at, like Nazi Germany, a lot of the stuff that everything that, you know, the entire Holocaust was, was born out of ideology that we're doing it for the health and the betterment of German culture and German society, because they were ridding the world of, they were ridding at least their society of the people who they thought were anchors and, and were dragging down their economy and their culture and their society. And so they were they were cutting them off. You know, the the before the Holocaust was was had blown up to be the size that it was, and they were mass murdering Jews. They started off by by murdering the infirm or those who had, um, you know, diseases or deformities, so that they didn't take up valuable resources within the within the society. And so when they were able to say that you no longer are uh, a valued member of society and you are no longer worthy of life, they killed them and they rationalized the murder by saying, well, now we can free up resources. We don't have to provide resources to keep you alive because you're not providing value to our culture. You're not providing value to our society anymore. And so what's, what's concerning or what scares me and what should be concerning and scaring other people around the world is that's a very short distance to hop when you're already implementing totalitarian 
solutions to protect from a virus. I was reading an article just uh, just today that was talking about how I think it's in Chicago that they're putting in they're putting in uh, vaccine mandates for let's the police force and some police officers who are nearing retirement have said, you know what, I'm just going to go ahead and retire so I don't have to do the va- the vaccine mandate and and deal with all of this BS anymore. And so now the city of Chicago is likely going to deny retirement benefits and retirement pay to those police officers who choose to retire rather than get vaccinated. At what point do we stop and say, this isn't about healthcare anymore? Because remember the argument is police, you have to be vaccinated so that when you are interacting with the public, right, you're not, getting sick from them. Okay, well, I'm going to retire. I'm not going to be interacting with the public anymore. Let me go my own separate ways. Nope, but we're not going to pay you. This is all about power and control. It has nothing to do with the healthcare of anybody. It's they're, they're implementing the, the actions of power and control and the totalitarianism and all of that. They're implementing that under the auspice of it's for your own good health. Think about it in another way. If you were in a relationship and your spouse required that you had to inject your body with something in order to work, and then for every mile you drove to and from work or to and from the grocery store, we had to track you. Your spouse was going to track you for that. And your spouse was going to track who you came into contact with. And then you had to pay your spouse for every mile that you traveled. Remember, that's in the new bill. So your spouse is putting all of these requirements on you. You can't leave the house unless I give you, unless I give you permission. And you can leave the house, but only if you put this in your body. And when you leave the house, I need to know who you're in contact with at all times. And if I reach out and I ask you where you are, you need to send physical, you need to send uh, visual proof of where you are. So I know who you're with and where you're at. That's an application that they've put in down in Australia who does that exact same thing. So imagine if you have a spouse that way, let's say your let's say your friend has a spouse that is making them do all of those things. What would you tell to your friend? Would you tell them that they're in a loving committed relationship and they should stay? Or would you tell them that they're in a very abusive relationship and they need to get out? You would more than likely tell them they're in an abusive relationship. Question, what the hell are you doing staying with that person? You need to get the hell out of that relationship and move on with your life. So then why is it that we allow our own government to do that to ourselves? These are questions that people should be asking, but nobody's thinking about it in terms of that, putting it in terms that way. What, you would not you would not willingly accept that from an individual who tried to treat you the way that our federal government is trying to treat us. You wouldn't put up with it. You wouldn't. You wouldn't. You wouldn't. You certainly wouldn't defend it. And I don't care who you are. You would likely be telling all of your. You would likely be telling your friends who lived in that abusive relationship, get out. 
And yet our federal government does those, does those exact same things or wants to do those exact same things to us. And yet we have over half of the country that says, yep, sounds fantastic. What a great idea. And that I think is what's scary. And hopefully people stop and begin to think about that so that they can make better decisions about who they elect in office. All right. Hopefully next week, Jason will be back and the show will be, uh, will be funnier. Hopefully, um, you know, we, you and I can both hope, (laughs) but again, he is off, uh, celebrating his son's birthday. Thank you for hanging in there with me today. I had a lot of fun. You know, it's a, it's a lot of fun to sit here behind the microphone and be able to talk and not have to, uh, let Jason talk and tell me how I'm wrong. And, Uh, you know, and uh, be able to uh, just do whatever the hell I want to do, but I do miss him. I do wish him, wish him to be back. Um, and uh, I know he'll be back. So we both know that we're going to continue to do this together. So, but thanks for hanging in there um, and listening to the show. Again, remember you can catch all of our content over at fusionunderground.net. Remember, we're not on YouTube anymore. We're on BitChute for the videos. So if you want to catch the videos, you want to see everything that uh, you want to see what I've been pointing at and looking at and sharing on screen. Um, make sure to check us out on BitChute. We're no longer on YouTube. We probably will not be. Um, it's I'm trying to get the timing down in terms of, pu- of publishing it out, but you know, share the links, share the links with your friends, tell them about the show. Um, getting more listenership out there is always a good thing. Our listenership is growing, um, which is great. So thanks to everybody who listens. Thanks to everybody who shares and talks about the show. Uh, from Jason, uh, you know, I can say, you know, on Jason's behalf that uh, we both really greatly appreciate it. Um, and we love the fact that uh, there are people that out there listen to us and really um, are interested in what we have to say. Not that you care about what we have to say, but you're at least interested in what we have to say. Hopefully, uh, if nothing else, we're just a different viewpoint and getting you to think about things in a different way, may, may, maybe giving you some additional info or different insight that you didn't have. But by all means, share your ideas with us. We like to know what you like, what you think about. Um, and, uh, tell us how we're wrong. Um, I read everything that we get and, uh, share it with Jason. We talk about it. Um, and we'd love to hear that insight because we don't think we know everything. And we certainly, uh, we certainly don't know everything. All we do, all we are is two jokers with a podcast. Anyway, thanks for listening to the fusion underground, everybody. Peace word light.